0: black, you're white. Now what? What if I say the wrong thing? You probably will. Who doesn't? But I'll do my best to listen. Maybe if we're humble enough to listen to each other. Maybe if we're brave enough to
1: lean into those difficult conversations. We might. We could. Come up with some answers. Make some real
0: progress. Discover how much we have in common. And appreciate our differences. Now you're talking. I'm David Conley, communications consultant. And I'm Chris Thurber, clinical
1: psychologist. Welcome to I'm Black, You're White, Now What? Our guest tonight will be the Reverend James Winfrey, who is uh, doing a lot of work uh, in the community with uh, homeless as well as with uh, youth and young people, and he also has a very vast uh, knowledge of African American history in the United States, and so we're going to tap some of that and have some great discussion just about Uh, how race affects a lot of these different areas that he's working in and what he's seeing out there. But before we do that, um, Chris, I'd like to, you know, just like we always do, kind of recap what we talked about in our last episode. Uh, We had a very great uh, conversation and uh, that was dealing with the perspective of uh, an interracial couple and just uh, how race has affected uh, their relationship, their marriage, and their their evolving uh, point of view over the years, and so I I thought it was a great, uh, very touching uh, conversation, and uh, I enjoyed you know speaking with uh, both men about uh, you know just what they've been seeing and what they've been dealing with. Uh, individually and collectively as a couple, and so I, you know, thank Andy and Brian for yeah. their contribution.
0: Yeah, it, it was fantastic, and um, I'm also grateful that Andy and Brian were able to join us. Um, I think I, the two things that I learned, or the two biggest things I learned, were number one, they are very aware of one another and how people are treating them in group settings and mixed settings but they don't come to each other's rescue um, and i think that takes a lot of understanding and love and they do know when to step in if they feel like you know the other person is uh, gonna say or do something they regret but i'm you know struck by how much Unspoken communication there is between them that is racially charged or racially aware. And I also was really touched at the end when Andy was talking about how much his parents, who are both still alive, have learned from Brian, from Andy's being married to, first of all, another man, and second of all, a black man, and that his parents who you know are around 90 years old have both evolved in their thinking so for anyone who is about to write off an older generation especially in these times when we're most of us trying to learn as much as we can about race and about communication it is absolutely within anybody's capacity to learn, no matter how young they are, no matter how old they are, so that was really Never too late to to
1: grow. Mm.
0: Exactly, exactly. So Reverend James, we're really, really happy that you're joining us today. Thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule, Uh, and you're joining us from the Los Angeles area. Uh, Could you tell us um, a bit, and especially for our listeners, um, what it is that you do, and how you got started i understand that you and david know each other from st louis but yes. talk to us a little bit about what you do professionally and personally and then we're full of questions
2: sure sure well um i am currently uh, the director of operations for an organization called urban alchemy it's a non-profit that is dedicated to um, helping those who are formerly uh, formerly incarcerated um, to experience restorative justice by serving their community, we provide um, employment to approximately 500 individuals who either are formerly incarcerated, uh, long, uh, former long-term offenders, uh, or folks who are uh, experiencing or have experienced significant homelessness. And our um, our role basically is to champion a set of values that help them to. Um, to work um, in transitional workforce development jobs, and so that they can move on and get back to society. So that's kind of where we are today. Uh, in the past, I pastored for about twenty years in the African Methodist Episcopal Church, mm-hmm. and uh, my, my new kind of ministry is now uh, on Skid Row here in LA. What brought you to that? Wow! I tell you, um. I had been pastoring in, a, uh, in, a, in a, the normal church environment for a number of years, and uh, the church started reaching out and doing a lot of um, homeless outreach in a little town called Dothan, Alabama, and it was just phen- a phenomenal kind of new approach to ministry. And uh, my wife and I got excited about it, and over time, that ministry grew and grew. And there came an opportunity here in Los Angeles for us to relocate to her hometown, and so here we are. Since about 2016, we've, we've been here. Started out um, working on Skid Row at another nonprofit, um, where we help folks who are in similar situations uh, find jobs and keep those jobs. And so, yeah, that's kind of how we we ended up on Skid Row.
1: So, are you providing, uh, you know, like training um, for, like yeah. that transition? How, what, how does that work exactly?
2: Definitely. So, what we provide, first of all, we provide them, you know, with the fishing pole, with a job. So, we contract out with the city and with other nonprofits as a subcontractor to provide um, services to those who are experiencing homelessness. For instance, in LA, any any given night there's about 15,000 people living on the streets. 15,000, um, wow. Yeah, and so that's just like the city. And so they need a place to use the restrooms. So for instance, one of the things we do is we have a program called the Pit Stop Program where we actually man um, and attend um, restrooms from approximately 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. depending on the contract. And we do that throughout the city so people who are homeless can actually have the dignity of using the restroom. Uh, we provide mobile showers to folks um, who don't have a place to, to take a shower. So we probably have a fleet of about, at this point, 25 showers throughout the Los Angeles region. Um, so the folks that staff that are people who, again, uh, are, are those who uh, have experienced um, the criminal justice system and what we do with those guys is not only do we give them the job but we help them to navigate trying to um, become better and better people in terms of being employable so for instance we we offer de-escalation training
0: uh, the biggest barrier for anyone coming out of a period of incarceration, I'm thinking of the question that's on every single job application, you know, have you ever been convicted of a crime, you know, XYZ, it's um, such a blessing that you and your wife are doing this work and mm-hmm. that someone can come out of prison and have a job and not have to deal with that that hurdle. But, I, you know, I, I, I realize as I make that observation, I don't understand the legality of um, what would happen or the consequences if somebody said, yes, I have been convicted of a crime, I don't, I'm not not doing that anymore, Um, but yes. Uh, Is someone like that ever employable if they don't come through a a nonprofit like yours?
2: Definitely, Um, but the the benefit of coming through a nonprofit like uh, Urban Alchemy is that they receive Uh, the coaching that's necessary for them to truthfully answer that question when they are approached and for them to be able to sell themselves, if you will. That's just like anybody else would have something on their resume that might be um, challenging to explain, like a gap in uh, uh, work history or something like that. They're able to do it competently by talking about um, not just the skills that they learned while in prison, but also some of those um, restorative justice principles you know, dignity, respect, empathy, um, how to give back and and, and just the whole idea of self-discipline, self-control, those kinds of things that they, those skills that they have now. So we're able to give them those tools. Um, But I think that most folks that come out do find it kind of hard, find find it kind of challenging.
1: Yeah. And how difficult um, is it for, I mean, like, I'd imagine, you know, that's about changing habits and things like that. And even though the training is there, how difficult is that transition?
2: It can be It can be very, very hard if they don't have a support network, right? So oftentimes someone will get out, they may have family members that are there, but they're not the same person they were three years ago family is not really trained to deal with some of the trauma that has that they've experienced while in prison so it can be very very tough um, there it depends on the person it depends on their experience but um, you know that's the, the key piece to it is to to provide wraparound services because if they don't have that support they will end up on skid row in short order and they'll be surviving um, just by the skin of their teeth like a lot of folks are down there
1: so you hear a lot about, um, you know, like the disproportionate number of uh, uh, minorities, particularly African Americans, in the prison system. Uh, is, so, is this something that's reflected in the work that you do?
2: Definitely. About eighty percent of the folks that we uh, that are working with us are are of African descent, um, and the remaining are are uh, Latino and it's very it reflects the prison system which in, reflects our criminal justice system and the uh, school prison pipeline that um that kind of permeates our our prison system here in the united states
1: talk you to know. me a little bit about More the about prison about... uh school pipeline. Yeah, yeah go ahead i'm sorry i'm probably no that's my saying, question
0: go ahead david
2: mm-hmm. yeah so you know um Wow, it's that's a that's a huge huge question, but, but I'll, I'll try to like just kind of piece it together. You know, we're disproportionately when I say we we African Americans are disproportionately suspended um, and receive um, behavioral um, uh, suspensions and things of this nature. Uh, it's just it's just a lot lot more folks of that are people of color that experience it. And by default, um, those folks end up not finishing or completing their education. They end up, um, because of their um, living conditions or because of some of the, the prohibitive uh, things that are happening in their communities, they end up part of the, the prison system. And it happens very early. It starts out with suspensions. It ends up being you know, kids who are um, perhaps in foster care it will roll into um, a few a few light misdemeanors, and then it'll end up being a long-term sentence, and their, their life is complete. Um, they could be 18 years old, they're in. I, I just uh, hired a guy the other day who uh, was in prison at 18, and he's now 47, just getting out.
1: Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's scary And those numbers. Um you know, are are pretty sad, you know, to hear about as an African-American man with, you know, uh, kids or whatever, too. That's, you know, we try to talk to him about that because I I remember hearing something years ago about uh, how and maybe you can speak more to this, too, how they build prisons or project the need uh, for prisons based on uh, test scores uh for african americans uh, and other minorities in the third grade i think it is
2: yeah yeah they, they they do and and it's big business and you'd think that like for instance in a state like california uh that's considered by most to be a very progressive state we have one of the biggest prison uh prison industrial systems uh in the country if not the biggest um but yeah, they, they project out, and a lot of the prison systems in the United States are now privatized. And you have to understand the, tra- the trajectory of prison from the time of slavery to now, right? So mm-hmm. prison system as we know it has its, its infancy in um, Reconstruction uh, after uh, after slavery ended, where uh, people who were former slaves were made to, um to end up on work farms form, basically. This is above and beyond sharecropping, mind you. Um, mm-hmm. They were in a lot of ways um, criminalized so that they could be incarcerated. And that's how the earliest prison systems started. So that from then to now, it's been multi-layered and, and kind of complex and, uh, in terms of how to explain it. But but yeah, it has its roots, law enforcement in general kind of has its roots in, uh, Ironically, in emancipation of slaves.
1: Hmm.
0: Wow. It really puts oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, it just puts a context around the racial tension that exists now in in the domain of law enforcement that most people don't know about, and to you know it's it's like I don't know out of the frying pan into the fire if yeah. you're emancipated and then anything you do or almost anything you do is criminalized but don't worry we've got a place for you um, right. and uh, it you know put african-american people under a kind of you know containment reenslave them but yes. under a different banner right yes
2: yes um... I highly recommend um, a book by Michelle Alexander. Perhaps you've heard it called "The New, the New Jim Crow," which excellently lines out the history of um, slavery through through to to now, and, and how it's even manifested in our not just our prison system, but our parole and probation system. Right? Mm-hmm. The idea that I'll give you I'll give you a really quick. Quick story. I was working at this other nonprofit, and a young man came out of prison. He had done about 15 years, and he was doing just 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 a wonderful job um, working as a truck driver on one of our at one of our business improvement districts. And um, then all of a sudden, he disappeared. He disappeared, and about 20 days later or so, he showed back up. And he's standing outside, and I'm like, "Hey, man, where you been?" And he points down to his his, his feet. And i look down and he raises his his leg and he has on um an ankle bracelet and i'm like wow he's like yeah they got me he said that's the that's the state right and i'm like yeah now i'm, I'm used to ankle bracelets people have worked for me and i've had to like give them breaks so that they can literally sit next to uh, a charger so that they can charge their ankle bracelets so that nobody comes and picks them up because if it like dies, they're gonna they're gonna violate, right? So I'm used to ankle bracelets. But then he he reaches down to his other leg and raises it, and there's another ankle bracelet. He said, Yeah, this is the state, and this is the Fed. So he literally in 2019 had two ankle bracelets, two different charges. He is out of prison. He's paid his price, but yet he is still chained yeah. um, by the system. And that just uh, that kind of that kind of got to me, you know. Yeah. Uh, I can I can give you an update. He's uh, he's doing a wonderful job now. He has um, he's actually um, been promoted like twice and is doing great work. Uh, at the local nonprofit where he's working at now, their product. Fantastic.
0: Yeah. That's awesome to hear. How do you, Reverend James? How do you give somebody in a situation like that hope?
2: Well, I'll tell
0: you the biggest
2: the biggest thing is for them to to be able to look around them and see other people being successful who have the same story. So a lot of folks that come to these nonprofits for help. Are, are recruited by other people who've, who who have experienced similar uh, situations um, I find myself in the unique situation of not not having been a part of the prison the prison system but 80% percent of the folks that work with me and, and work for me folks who who had that story mm-hmm. and I, I'm incredibly indebted to them because they offer a they offer a story that I never would have been able to to know about or understand. Um, that helps me to do my job a lot better than I ever would have been able to do it. So mm-hmm. they encourage each other. There, there literally is a community of folks that encourage one another to to be a better person
1: and to push
2: Powerful.
1: forward. Yeah. So let me let me ask you this. So like, and I know there are probably some people watching or hearing who. Um, you know, would think, well, we're talking about people who are, are choosing a life of crime, you know, right. and, you know, or have chosen it and maybe now they're trying to do better or whatever. But when you start talking about, and I know some conversations I've had about it, you start talking to people about, say, the prison industrial complex and and its root in, in racism and the emancipation of slaves, mm-hmm. etc., a lot of that's looked at like an excuse to, uh, you know, to, to give criminals a pass. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you say to that, having, you know, you're working with people uh, every day whose reality may not be that, you know?
2: Yeah, that's something that, that we experience every day, even working with partner nonprofits, people who who view very strongly others who have been incarcerated, who are now free, or who are homeless, and they really try their best to make it about them that they don't want to take any kind of responsibility as a fellow human being to to treat them just as a fellow human being, right? Um, I had a conversation the other day with a, a woman about whether or not to offer hand towels to people who were who are giving showers to. Her opinion was, hey, they're homeless. Um, they're lucky to just get a shower, right? And wow. that's this is a partner nonprofit whose mission it is to help people who are homeless. How about that?
1: <laughs> right, right. But
2: folks, the higher up in nonprofits you get, the, the less you'll see people of color, like the, board of, the boards of directors and things like that. Uh, a lot of the senior management a lot of the nonprofits who are here to help others, um, the empathy level kind of drops quite a bit because there's a disconnect, a historic disconnect, right? A political disconnect from the people who, who are actually trying to help. And so they do feel inclined to preach that mantra, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, rather than looking at the historic, systemic, racism that has caused an inordinate amount of trauma in our society and they don't see that, this is a big one, they don't see that yes, it impacts African Americans or people of color, but it also impacts everybody. It impacts them, even as someone of European descent that we're all kind of traumatized to that deep-rooted system of racism that exists in this country.
0: And I think, uh, Chris, you might remember... uh, I was just gonna say, David... We may be about to say the same thing. Yeah, importance of equal and high status in an interaction so that meaningful change can happen as long as someone is doing something even uh almost passive aggressively uh, this person doesn't need a hand towel they should be grateful for you know one towel they don't need you know soap they can use a shampoo all over mm-hmm. um, whatever it is that a person's doing that diminishes another person's status is an enormous roadblock to to meaningful change and it's a it's a privilege that I have enjoyed my whole life without knowing that I had this privilege, Mm -hmm. you know, until David and I had some really deep conversations about, so what is it that somebody might do? Specifically, what am I doing in the way that I interact with other people that either maintains their status, diminishes it, elevates it? And when people hear the word status, they tend to think about money and riches and bling and cars and, you know, but but on an interpersonal level, these are the kinds of things that I think so many people would benefit from understanding. And, you know, David and I have started doing some workshops that include his uh, status cafe exercise so that people can see. And, you know, we we push people. We don't call them out individually, but there are a lot of aha moments and people realize, mm-hmm. oh, you know, I just thought I was being kind of a jackass. But they don't realize, yeah, when you're like that, there are social ripples that extend way beyond that interaction. And it is, you know, as you said, James, uh, often racially based or socioeconomically based. Uh, David, what were you also going to say there?
1: No, I was kind of going to ask you a question um, and it's sort of, you know, related to what you were talking about. Just like kind of, um, you know, before this conversation, maybe now that you brought it up, even before you and I have had uh, some conversations. I'm just curious, like, uh, and, and not that you may have you know encountered thinking about it one way or the other uh, every day of your life, but, but just was your thinking... Uh, or even is it, you tell me just, was your thinking kind of like what I'm saying with regard to, well, Hey, choose this different way and then everything will, will be all right. You know what I mean? Pull yourself up. Did you have, or are you familiar with a pull yourself up by your bootstrap sort of mentality at all or not? I mean, I'm not, I'm not assuming that you did. Am just, I? Absolutely.
0: Yeah. No. Um, and I think. For maybe eighteen or so, you know, the first eighteen years or so of my life—that is to say, before I got to college—when I was in a much more diverse community. Having grown up in South Portland, Maine, there's a you know a million people, mostly white. More diverse now in uh, the the larger cities like Portland. That and by large city, certainly not by Los Angeles or Atlanta mm-hmm. standards, right? But um, maybe uh, 250,000 people in the greater Portland area. When I was growing up there, uh, you know, in the 70s and 80s, was almost exclusively white and very few first-generation immigrants. A lot has changed in those areas, but the rest of Maine, you know, not so much. And in that context, there wasn't even an opportunity for me to be thinking about status really. Um, it was just about what you were suggesting uh, well both of you working hard and so you know pulling yourself up by the bootstraps makes sense if there's a kind of uniformity to the the context uh, mm-hmm. or if people really are uh, starting on a fairly level playing field, which, if you have all these white people, um, of course there were socioeconomic differences, but there weren't really other meaningful cultural, religious, uh, certainly geographic dis- differences. It was such a, a homogeneous environment that. The people who did well or didn't do well were the ones who worked harder or less hard. Now, I say that as uh, that was my belief at the time. Now, of course, I see even in a racially homogeneous and largely religiously homogeneous community for people who began at a much lower socioeconomic level, it, it wasn't just a question of... Working hard because they had fewer opportunities afforded to them to begin with. So absolutely, I'm familiar with that, and I don't think I understood the the injustice that's baked into that assumption until I got to college. And again, as I said, um, a whole world opened up to me that I had not been, you know, familiar with. And it's hard. I just add this as an epilogue. You know, as a white family, I'm married to a woman who's a first-generation immigrant from Serbia. Uh, She is also white, uh, but from very different geographic and, you know, ethnic uh, circumstances than I was. Mm -hmm. It's a challenge to, you know, teach that lesson. We live in New Hampshire now, which is um, also racially... um, far less diverse than either Atlanta or Los Angeles where the two of you are and we're very fortunate that the school where I've worked for the last 21 years has uh, you know, young people from all 50 states and 40 different countries and I don't think I would have stayed or felt comfortable staying in Maine or New Hampshire to raise my kids unless we could be immersed in that kind of environment. And fortunately, I do see that my own kids have not adopted some of the assumptions that, you know, really, that I grew up with and that prevented me from seeing some of what James is talking about with regard to people's status and opportunities and the, you know, the irony of someone who is on the sort of maybe corporate level of a nonprofit, who's white who is you know in their heart doing the best they can but not seeing the nuances in the struggles that people have you just yeah you just can't unless you're i feel i'll just speak for myself i wouldn't have had the insights that i've had unless uh two things have occurred one and i still have a lot to learn but one is that people have challenged me and said you know hang on no just you know i don't care how many letters you got after your name that's not right and the other is that i've been fortunate enough to travel and be in lots of different places to live in los angeles for four years to live in seattle for four years um, to have gone back to Serbia and you know seen what a country is like after a horrific war, um, and you know you can't really understand um, some of the some of the meaningful parts of human struggles unless you know you um, have some of those experiences. So I can't blame my parents or the people around me. Um, but I sort of blame the circumstance of uh, the homogeneity of my, you know, the first 18 years of of my life on, you know, that that's what I would blame for my ignorance.
1: I've got a question that I kind of like to get, uh, hearing that from you, uh, like both your perspectives, because from where I'm sitting, they seem like they would be um, interestingly Different, but both of you have been exposed to uh, people from different cultures, people from uh, different social economic uh, you know, places in society. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm curious, like, coming from where you come from, your upbringing, uh, Dr. Thurber, and also uh, you, Reverend Winfrey, come from yours, how are you? by default, you know, view or have grown to view people who might be in situations like, you know, say what you're dealing with, uh, James, or even at Exeter. I know there are people from all over the place, but they still are are having to move and, and shake in the greater, you know, society outside of the school. Do you know what I mean? So, so I'd imagine some of those students are hitting you with some of their experience, which would be different than uh, like the experience you grew up with as a as a kid there, um, and coming from where they're from and thrust now into this type of society, and and maybe James, you're relating on a different you know level uh, with some of the people that or coming out of long-term prison sentences, just how are you, how is your empathy being processed to deal with, you know what I mean? These people and anybody can answer first or whatever. I'm just curious as to how that goes.
2: go.
0: When, David, when you say how my empathy is being processed, uh, can you just clarify Sure. Like like so
1: when you're growing up, like you said, it's it's uh, even though there's different, you know, social economic uh, levels, for the most part, everybody is white. So if I'm a student and I'm going to Exeter now and I'm from the north side of St. Louis, I'm having to deal with like uh, when you say that. What I hear is when I went to Lincoln University, Lincoln University, as long as you were on campus, particularly in the evening, was very black. But when you went into Jefferson City, it was not so much depending on where you went. And in Jefferson City, uh, I've been, you know, called the N-word to my face and people passing by saying I've been treated in a way that screamed the N-word like at restaurants Uh, when I went looking for... Uh, apartments I was told over the phone because of how I presented over the phone I was told that the apartment was available and everything was fine come on over and take a look at it Uh, it's open and when I got there suddenly the apartment is not available anymore it's you know there's a whole switch and temperature change when they actually see my face so that experience me then coming and talking to you about that experience you know, how are you, how does that hit you if I say, listen, I can't get ahead because of this, how do you process empathy for me, if at all, you know, um, being somebody who didn't have to deal with that growing up, like, how do you see that? And I'm asking that juxtaposed to James who You know, obviously, James has not been, you know, in a a prison sentence, you know, unless there's some things we need to talk about offline. Uh, But at any rate, um, but coming from I know, you know, where he's come from, uh, I would think that there would be a different uh, sort of Mm -hmm. relatability to that. And so I'm just curious to hear from you all's different perspective how you would deal with or how you have dealt with or how you have heard or how it's hit you uh some of the things that people would say when they come and say hey listen for me getting ahead is a difficult thing it's you know pulling yourself up by your bootstraps means something altogether uh different for me you know um and so I, I, I'm just, i just, I'll say this one last thing to help maybe clarify. I, I kind of mentioned this on our first episode, but, uh, or something like it, but it's, this will be different. I had, I read a thing the other day that was saying people who say all lives matter are coming from the same place as the folks who wrote the uh, All Men Are Created Equal and then went home to their slaves. Mm, yeah. You know, and so it's kind of like, you you mean that in your head, but you mean it in a way that's, that's, that's different. So when you say all lives matter to me, I think you mean it from somewhere in your mind. You think that's a good place, but you may be living a different reality than that in your quiet places. And so I'm just yeah. wanting to know what those quiet places are like when you think about it and consider it you know, hearing some of what James is saying he's dealing with yeah. uh, on Skid Row. And then I'd like to hear what James has to say about that. Go
0: ahead. Well, thank you for uh, explaining the question in, in, in more detail. And I think now I understand what it is that you're asking. And I would say, I um, the, the dominant feeling is helplessness I feel like and I, I would dial this back all the way to the time that I the four years that I was in Los Angeles and as a as a trainee in the you know PhD program in clinical psychology uh serving as a supervised junior clinician in a community mental health center and getting a chance to see Uh, an amazing cross-section of uh, different people who lived in the greater Los Angeles area. Um, And I say uh, dominant feeling of helplessness for a couple of reasons. One is it was abundantly clear to me that I needed to say to clients or friends who were reporting on some of their experiences that that reflected uh, people's prejudice. I understand that this is really painful for you, and I also need to recognize and say out loud that it's not happened to me before. Something like that hasn't happened to me before, so I can do the best that I can to listen and, you know, Hear what this injustice felt like to you, and also just recognize that there's a limit to what I am able to truly understand about what it is that you're going through, right? And I think you know there's there's in all of the research that's been done on the effectiveness of psychotherapy, the most important factor if you look at what contributes to positive change in people's mental health is feeling a rapport with the clinician and that's actually that far exceeds the the, the power, the contribution of the particular type of therapy that you're delivering uh, you just have to feel connected to that person you're sitting across from and you know if the person sitting across from me is not white then I'm already knowing that there's probably something that is going to take more time or may not even be possible uh, in in terms of the human connection. So again, it leaves me feeling really helpless. I remember one of my uh, professors in graduate school, someone that uh, first used the expression microaggression, and talked about intersectionality before the word intersectionality was popular, a professor named Stanley Sue. And we had a case study where he asked us, um, and the 17 or 18 people in my class uh, included men and women and people of color and white people. And so just our group was fairly diverse. And um, yet we still, all of us got this question wrong in seminar and professor sue said all right so you've got a client uh, coming in you read this client's uh, intake form an hour before they arrive and it says that they are Japanese and uh, you know first generation immigrant and this and that and a few other demographic details how are you going to best meet this client's needs uh, and we all said some version of or the people who answered uh, well we, you know we've got an hour to try to figure out um, you know what 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 Japanese culture is like if we're unfamiliar with it. Or we'll ask Sharon, who was one of the other students in the PhD program who was second generation, um, but uh, Japanese heritage. And he said, well, um, you know, that's pretty useless. And we all thought, wow, really? Wow, what would's you know, just try to do a little research? And he said, do you think you're going to go to, this is pre-internet, of course, the encyclopedia and read the entry for like Japan or you know skim through some book or or even listen to what Sharon has to say uh, you know for 15 or 20 minutes and know something meaningful about your client you know and we were all humbled and he said you know there's part of this that you're not going to be able to do and the rest of it you can only figure out by asking that person what's been your experience as a first generation Japanese immigrant who was born in Osaka and has grown up in, you know, Orange County or Mm -hmm. wherever. And it was, I mean, we were just, again, like I felt really helpless. Like I thought that I was going to get this fancy degree and have all these tools and, then I realized some of what I'm not going to be able to do as a clinician is because of my race and um, there being, you know, this disconnect. So uh, that's a long answer to your question, but I have always remembered, you know, Professor Sue's advice, just ask and ask and listen and try to understand. But I also, since starting my job here at Exeter in uh, 21 years ago, believe so strongly what Reverend James said, which is, you know, you, you need to be able to see someone who looks like you, who Mm -hmm. ideally has been through something similar. If you're going to have any hope, like I can be a really good, therapist for an Exeter student who is a person of color and I can help them to some degree and then um, they also need a role model if they don't have a clinician who looks like them at least there's somebody on campus who does with whom they have a connection to whom they look up and that is just something I you know can't provide so again it's this feeling of of helplessness that um i can try really hard but uh but there are limits to what i can do and i suppose that's the you know the core of my humility such as it is um is recognizing what those limits are and so when i process you know when i try to empathize um, i try to do it in a way that is genuine and um is as free of uh assumptions that i'm some kind of like you know savior of this person um because you know gosh darn it i have a phd uh and it, it you know right <laughs> uh, like for, it just all it piled higher and deeper they say anyway <laughs> so um i james what like, can you relate to that? And and yeah. how is your experience yeah, it, different? It's a it's a really
2: a remarkable question, and uh, to just listen to your answer like helped me to reflect on on just how different our experiences are in in um, in in this country, right? So like, my empathy comes not from like the sense of helplessness, but I can like so identify with. With the folks that I come into contact with, who have these kinds of challenges, because I've experienced some of the same trauma yeah. that they've experienced, right? So I, I immediately, before I go on into that whole thing, I I, I I thought, when do I feel helpless, like as somebody, someone of African descent? And when do I? And I thought, well, when I'm around a whole lot of, uh, I don't use I don't use white and black a lot. So people of European descent. Uh, you know, um, that's pretty much when I feel pretty helpless is because I'm out of kind of my element, like a fish out of water kind of. And um, it is only during those times where they might be experiencing some of the same trauma that I experienced it that I feel probably most at home in a strange kind of a way. Mm-hmm. So that if I, for instance, when I lived in Alabama, the majority of folks who were experiencing home, home, homelessness were people, were rural folk, white folks, and um, and and I was able to identify with a lot of the, the challenges that they're going through. Um, and you know, I think that is that place where that place, that space where where all of us, no matter what our ancestry is, um, that place where we're all like challenged the most, that place where we desire the most for our families is such a unifying place in, in a lot of ways. Um, so much so that very early in our nation's history, uh, the folks, before there was a the United States, the, the the folks that were kind of controlling all the purse strings, the landed gentry, they made sure that folks that were suffering, no matter whether they were Native Americans, Africans, or or poor europeans they they saw the unifying power of of struggle and trying to get ahead and how people can unite as one against those who oppress those who don't have and that's why they started making those distinct distinctions you know in the 17 the the 16 1670s right around the time of bacon's rebellion it's like these, you know, if we don't, if we don't draw a line and, and create this idea of white mm-hmm. and black, right, if we don't create that, because, you know, at that, at that time, you know, the, the biggest difference was, you know, do you own land, right, um, are you a man, <laughs> you know, unfortunately, mm-hmm. that was a thing, mm-hmm. and so it was at the point where people started unifying against oppressive folks who had a lot of money, that law started being changed and the real big pieces of chattel slavery started coming together and this idea of, no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not from Britain, I'm not from Belgium, I'm not from France, I'm white. Right? And yeah. you're other than, you're, you're savage or you're black. These concepts uh, came to play. And so our experiences were, were different. The world that we live in now is a world where, if I am um, a male of European descent, the the America that I live in, I'm going to experience others who look probably mostly like me, and you're not really like having to work through uh, a lot of the historical challenges. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, if you are someone of African person of color, you have to learn how to navigate two worlds at a very early age. And some of us are more successful than that than others, mm-hmm. and some of us just never have the opportunity to. The folks who, who who don't have that opportunity to, to be able to navigate, to learn how to speak the code, you know, that needs to be spoken in a professional setting. Um, Folks who don't learn that, a lot of times they end up in the criminal
1: justice system. And that's kind of one of the things I was going to say, not to cut you off, James, but um, so here's I agree and disagree, you know, like. Brother, I agree with you, but I disagree with the helplessness thing. And let me say this: it's your experience, so I'm not saying I disagree in that your experience. Sure, that. sure, sure. I I have a challenge with the notion of that, though, because I feel like, for instance, there are there are commonalities in all of it that we miss because we get so blinded by. The black, white, Mm -hmm. or white, other color situation. And, you know, I invite you to push back, but I'm saying, I'm saying, let's, let's go with the example. Both of you said something that I found was the same. So, Chris, you grew up and you said you grew up in a pretty uh, homogeneous situation where, for the most part, everybody was white until you went off to college and start saying, man, there are, you know, these other cultures that I'm now experiencing. I knew Mm -hmm. academically that they existed, but I'm experiencing them more, Mm -hmm. more one-on-one. Well, I had a similar situation when I was growing up. For the most part, everybody in my neighborhood and in my life was black. Mm -hmm. And then I got bused to you know school uh, in a different area of town and all of a sudden I'm dealing with a lot of other cultures and a lot of other people and I'm experiencing it but initially my experience was all black and and James said the same thing with regard to uh, people who don't get the opportunity to live in both worlds they are in a situation where for the most part everybody looks like them and everybody is is experiencing mm-hmm. this certain level of being disenfranchised or whatever but that's not unlike what you experienced growing up with everybody being white it's different in that the so the, the opportunities available to you are different but but you understand what i'm saying the fact that you were in a situation where everybody looked like you and one way or the other was experiencing some version of the same thing until you come to this other situation, if you do or not. There is a there is a place there to relate that should lessen the helplessness.
0: There definitely and is. And I'm
1: saying, in definitely. my experience, I have I have had the experience where people who look like me and and could not should have been able to. Could relate to what I was, I grew up with and was grow, going through, were the least helpful to me. But the people yeah. who were more helpful to me were people who were of another race, white or Asian or whatever. Right. And but they they related to me on a human level and helped me. I'm not even talking about financially or or with opportunities where they open some door. I'm talking about help me to realize some things about myself as a person, as a man or as an emerging adult or whatever. They helped me to realize those things on a human level that was not about me being black. It was about me being a man. Now don't get me wrong. There are some black people who helped me realize some things about myself as a black man, and that, that enriched me in that way. But I'm saying there was not this thing where I could only relate to black men right, or right. black people. And, yeah. if, and And if I didn't have them, I was somehow going to be lost. I think there was some help in those areas, but there was a great deal of help that I got that was of equal or greater value from some people who were not black, who related to me and connected with me as a human being. And I'm saying, I think if we start kind of, which is kind of why I'm even talking about this show and things like, I think, I think we get trained and inundated, especially these days with how different we are. And not only how different we are, but how our differences make you deficient. You don't understand me because you're white, because you can't hang with black experience. And so because you can't, you're somehow diminished and you're looking at me the same way. And now we never get over that. We never get, you know what I mean, to where we push beyond that. And what happens is we then continue to create situations where James has work. You know what I mean? We continue to create situations where where black people and people of color are looked at as less than. So therefore, they are excellent fodder for the prison industrial complex. To the point where we're breeding them to be that and, and setting them up to be that from, from third grade, as we talked about earlier in this episode, because of how we view their status. They're still looking at that three-fifths human thing. So I'm just saying as long as we keep doing that and then saying on the flip side of that, you're either. So I'm either going to be racist in that I'm going to beat you with this horse whip. You know, proverbial or or real life one, or I'm going to feel like I'm helpless, so my hands then will be off you and tied, and so I'm either going to drown you or offer you no help. Either way, I die. <laughs> either right. way, I die. Yeah. No, this, you know it, what it, I mean by you sitting on the boat saying, "Dang, that's a shame." Swim, yeah. swim, brother. You know. <laughs> I mean? But you know what I mean. So it's like. Until we start relating to the fact that this person needs a life preserver or needs my help or whatever, until we start relating to the fact that if I was in there drowning, I would want somebody to throw me a lifeline. I don't understand why that's so hard for us to get as human beings. I'm sorry. I'm through. Go
2: ahead. Just real quick, I think that part of it is you know the acknowledgement of the feeling of helplessness, but then you know obtaining those tools that will in the midst of the helplessness, allow you to find find a way. So that feeling of helplessness might might be there, but but it's the wherewithal to like, how do I change that feeling and turn it into action? What do I way.
1: do after that feeling? Like, what do I yeah, do yeah. after
2: You know, whether you know, I had a, a CEO that um uh a former former another nonprofit <laughs> um that I mean he was very very frustrated that he couldn't he was very frustrated in his helplessness. And uh, we had coffee one day and one of the things I said, hey man, if you just like listened, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: that's a tool, you know. So Mm -hmm. to be able to learn those tools, Mm -hmm. you know, I think is
0: is quite helpful. Uh, Doc? Well, I think that's what, you know, Professor Sue was trying to say to all of us uh, trainees is, you you know, you've got to ask open-ended questions and then you've got to listen Mm -hmm. uh, to understand what somebody else's experience is. And um, I think that's, you know, James, the beauty of what you said at the end of your previous comment that prompted, uh, you know, David's follow-up comment. Mm-hmm. We've got to identify our common humanity, right? And and meet each other at that level. Yeah. And my response uh, to you, David, is that fortunately, uh, and you know this because you and I have made educational videos and things together um i'm a confident person and i think that i i don't know where it comes from i think encouragement from my parents and uh, you know their honesty with me about what i was doing well and not doing well but i have never um from that feeling of helplessness uh, I've never just imploded and gone to a place of like hopelessness or like I can't help. Um, I've always thought, and I think I began in a place that was arrogant, thinking, well, as as you know, people say sometimes, you know, i don't I don't see color. It doesn't matter. Uh, like what matters here is that I'm a good clinician. What matters here is that, you know, I can diagnose whether this person has anxiety or depression or bipolar disorder or something like that's, and that's in a book, and it's got criteria, and it's totally objective, and can we not please, like, play the race card? But mm-hmm. the helplessness, I feel, is um, on top of a lot of confidence that if I do what James was suggesting and I'm able to connect with the human experience, because of course i have had times when i felt in my life depressed and anxious and sad and uh, when i've been grieving and when i felt great injustice not racially uh, motivated but some other kind of injustice so i think that i feel i can be very helpful to somebody and uh, i know that there are some limitations and i also as as you did with your comment david i also like, challenge those. Uh, I challenge people on the magnitude of those uh, limitations. So, that is a very abstract uh, statement. Let me bring it to something very concrete that was very recent. Last night, I'm watching CNN, and Don Lemon was asking uh, an African American man who. Uh, I don't remember uh, whether it was uh, a congressman or a governor but Don was asking this gentleman what do you think about Kamala Harris being Biden's nominee for or Biden's choice for his running mate and uh, so there was you know answer commentary and then don lemon asked a follow-up question that was, it was very interesting and for people who don't know or who are listening don lemon is black and he kind of stumbled through this question i don't think it was one on the teleprompter but it went something like okay and what do you think about what some people say about joe biden which is that he can be a little bit too familiar with black people or a little bit um, too colloquial in his style of interaction with people of African or Caribbean descent, and the gentleman's answer was, "Well, I have some thoughts about that, but um, I, you know, I don't want to share them." And the interview is kind of over. And I turned to my wife, uh, who I said is is also white, and I said, "You know, that's really interesting." Um, and and here's how, guys. I think it speaks to part of what we're talking about uh and i'm interested now in in how the two of you would respond to this if someone is doing the best they can to find that common humanity um, is it inappropriate to uh at what point might it become inappropriate uh to either adopt language or pronunciation or or jewelry or dress or um, topics of conversation <laughs> that are that are like too familiar. Um, because I thought like of all the things to criticize Joe Biden for making this uh, choice of a vice presidential running mate, now you're saying like one of the whitest guys on the planet <laughs> is acting a little bit you black. You probably sometimes. should. Right? It's probably better than that you answer. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> I love this I mean, question. I mean, like, white guy from Delaware, and right. like, okay, so what? I, I think I think that the short answer
2: is, it's best to probably just play it safe and not do it. Like, just mm. uh, be you, be authentically yeah, you. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah.
2: Uh, there are, you know, uh, African Americans are not a monolith. Of course, yeah. Um, and so you're going to have a wide range of folks. So you got folks over here who maybe grew up in the South, and mm-hmm. a lot of the similar, like, cultural um, intonations that might come out of a, of a white person's mouth would be the same thing coming out of a black person's mouth, sugar, you know, baby, you know, those kinds of words. Mm-hmm. So that person probably would not be offended. But say you get someone who's, like, super... Um, culturally seeking we call them you know super conscious you know trying to like feel out you know um who they are in their identity might be hypersensitive to someone who they see um or hear using some of the same language right just mm-hmm. the same um phrases um earlier about like this idea of code switching right so a lot of people don't and this might be a whole other episode, but I mean me and David talk a different language when we're not, you know, professionally talking, right? We talk the language <laughs> we grew up in, right? right. And that would probably scare the hell out of some people. But that comes and it's deeply rooted in everything from culture to even pre the pre um, pre slavery condition of our people, right? Mm-hmm. The long, the long O sound. If I don't say door. I, when I'm at home, I say shut the door.
1: Mm. I
2: don't say poor. I say po. I don't say I want some more. I say I want some more. Right? Mm. It comes with an inflection, attitude, and a different vowel sound, right? And that's just super deep, like cultural stuff. And if someone tries to like mimic it in some kind of way, it comes out kind of as contrived. Yeah. Kind of and so. I just, I always say, like, just be be who you are. There are some folks that grew up, I have a fraternity brother who, he grew up in, in the heart of North St. Louis, and all he knew how to be was what everyone around him was, which was culturally African, right? African American. And he was accepted as such, right? You couldn't tell him that he was European, you'd get have a fight on your hand. And he was—he, mm-hmm. everyone knew him, and that's just how it was. He was accepted as part of the mm-hmm. of the of the, of the uh, community. But someone coming coming in who who may in, and have a good heart, right? And have good intentions, like Mister Joe. And Joe's just going to be Joe anyway. But mm-hmm. um, I'm thinking about some SNL sketches right now. I'm sorry. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> we right. got to come back and do a whole drill by Biden. Yeah, <laughs> But 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 yeah you know um, so yeah that's 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 that yeah. David if you might want to have something.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I was I was gonna say uh, something a little similar, but uh, honesty is the best policy, and I think yeah. the I think the short answer to that is that it 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 will come across condescending and contrived, and the and the reason for that, and you just gotta always. Uh, you know, be honest and, and, and stay true to the game. But but in America, the history is that you mm. have seen black as deficient for so long that when you then try to do things, it smacks of blackface. Yeah. Uh, it smacks of, uh, you know, minstrel show type thing where you are making fun of black people and the black experience when that may not be your intention at all that's how it reads and it reads that way because you are not being authentically you as james said you're not being so that you you're not being honest and so the, a, a more lightweight version of it is i joke or used to joke more so uh they're adults now so i don't do it as much but uh when when the kids were teenagers uh, I would go in and, and try to, I, they would know I was joking and everything, but part of the stick was that I was, I was speaking the kids slang. They knew that I was <laughs> hip and I was down oh, yeah. with the way the kids talk today. But, and it, nice. it, it, But it's, it's so over the top that they know I'm not being, yeah. you know, but that, but that's how I'm going to relate to you kids, you know, and right. they would, they, we would have a nice laugh about it and they would know that I was not being serious. But, But that's how that can come across because that's not not who you are for real. And so you should just be honestly you and people can relate. And the thing is that black people have had to, like James said earlier, live in those two worlds. Because if I come saying dough and flow like I do at the house, you don't hire me. And if you hire me, you certainly don't promote me out of the janitorial pool. So in order for me to get ahead, I had to come in and make sure that my English was correct. I had to make sure that I could speak in a way that was palatable to those people in the boardroom. And so you didn't ever have to really do that because you weren't really trying to come to speak to folks in my neighborhood or speak to you know, if you were speaking to the people down in the janitor's office, it was to tell them to come clean up your office. It wasn't right. that you were trying to get ahead in the janitor's office, so you right. had to come down. Right. So there was no consequences for you in that way. So anytime you were doing it, you were doing it in a way that was to make fun of or whatever. So when you then do that to mm. say, as a, and you do it as a politician, especially... It really says you pants. people see it immediately. And yeah. It, and they that's see it true. immediately. And and <laughs> it's off putting immediately because of that history. So that's why that is. It's not like, oh Joe's a great guy in that way. And I'm saying I, I'm right. saying that to say I think Joe's a great guy. And I think Joe's intentions are are, are good mm-hmm. I am pure. But I'm saying it's hard to fight that history, man. Right. It just is. And, and, and so can I just say that it's in the midst of
2: of a people trying to figure out who they are still right,
1: right. so
2: we you know African Americans are people who are struggling to figure out what their identity is in this mm. in this in this world so there, there's a lot of different opinions about who we should be and what should we should be called and and those kinds of things so that it even bleeds over into politicians like Kamala Harris or a Barack Obama, um, folks who don't have, um, who are not American descendants of slavery, right? Who who have other, you know, uh, other kinds of experiences when they come in and they code switch. There's a group of us that sit back and say, hmm. Mm-hmm. So even within. You yeah. Know, that that community, you know, you can look and I, I heard a heard an interview from Kamala Harris the other day, and I heard her like turn it on. They questioned her mm-hmm. blackness. She turned it on, right? And I said, I just kind of something in me just said, hmm, you know. Mm-hmm. And so that's just an in, interesting nuance. So even yeah. if so that if people of color are struggling with it, then definitely folks are, you know, who, who are not would, would struggle all the more.
1: But yeah. also, also let's keep it real. It's it's about it's about the honesty of whether or not you think black culture in that way is valuable and america has always thought that black uh contributions were valuable when they when it comes to entertainment and that's primarily acting in front of the camera music uh when it comes to performing or sports But when it comes to stuff like making policy and things like that, it was just, we're still having the first black president. We're still having the first female uh, black, uh, you know, uh, vice president. I'm saying in, in 2020, these are still first and you still haven't had like the first of a lot of other, you know, races or whatever. So, I mean, let's let's. It's always funny because that thinking is, well, hey, everybody's been, you know, equal and everything is fine. I don't understand what the problem The problem is that in America, you do not really find that valuable. And here's the thing. Everybody will act like. Let me go back and say this and, and you can check me on it. But when when Barack Obama was elected president, one of the biggest unspoken fears was that he was going to go into the White House and then start having barbecues on the lawn. He was going to hire all his family. He was going to do all these ghetto stereotypes, which, in my opinion, this is my opinion, that has only happened after he was out of office. (laughs) almost everything you thought he was going to do as a ghetto president has been done after he got out of office there i said it i'm just saying it's it's funny but that's what you thought was going to happen that somehow he was going to go in and black the office he was going to blackify the presidency and (laughs) even so now all of a sudden the motorcade was going to be with some buick deuce in the quarters it was going to be it was just going to be this whole ghetto experience and that did not happen you know but that speaks, like, that speaks to like
2: the value of our culture though right like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. both ourselves and other people who look at us to say that's ghetto when it's our culture so right saying, and, and that's ghetto instead of our village that's the hood right that's right. our village right and right. uh, it's only it's only valuable if it can be monetized,
1: mm-hmm. right?
2: Jazz music was just jazz music until they figured out a way to monetize right, it. Right, Hip hop right. we you know I was eight years old, you were eight years old when it came along it was like it'll pass until mm-hmm. it was monetized. So that's another the big, big big fear we have. But it also speaks to like the, the fact that that some of the ghetto things happen post-rama. It speaks to some of the very similar things that we do that mm-hmm. we could connect on them on, on levels, you know, um that it once like, you stop of making
1: of- them yeah. deficient because they're attributed to black people, the minute you stop doing that, when if you look at it as a principle, it's a whole different thing. Yeah. Running the numbers was considered in word pennies until such time as it was making a bunch of money. Now it's the lottery. I'm just right. saying it's a whole and the minute you start putting value on it, it, it comes out of the hood. It comes out, it becomes this whole other thing. You change the name, it all of a sudden it, it's, it's different. But the minute uh, you're thinking about it as black and deficient, it's a whole different thing. And so right. that's I'm saying that to say when 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 people start looking at Joe as doing that, it's because coming out of his mouth it speaks to how you were looking down at it at first. And now all of a sudden it's, so it, it seems dishonest. And that's, that's the, yeah. the long answer to that. You know, Very interesting.
2: Uh, mm. Real quick. Uh, uh, there's a guy named Alonzo Herndon who mm. lived mm. in Atlanta, Georgia. He was a slave. He walked from uh, his town to Atlanta, Georgia, poor, his, his father had been a slave master. And he noticed that insurance salesmen would not sell insurance to people of color, to black people. So he'd ride around on his bicycle and he would sell a kind of insurance to blacks for like a nickel. And that started the Atlanta Life Insurance Company. Mm. Um, here was a, a man who had been a slave. And no one took note of what he did until after he started doing it. And that's when many, many people, many, many uh, folks of European descent tried to buy his um, his insurance company. That's just a good example of, like, how how that works, you know, so mm-hmm. much uh, for us. I don't know how, we get there, how I went down that rabbit hole, but very interesting. The Herndon Mansion is uh, right there
0: in Morris Brown's campus in Atlanta.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, Reverend James, I am i know I speak for David when I say we're really grateful for the time that you've spent with us. And I feel like there's so much more to talk about. And we've only just scratched the surface of the wonderful work you do um, with your nonprofit. So I hope that you'll come back and have another Thank discussion you. with us. Um, I feel like there's so much that people in general and I'll say for myself that I need to learn about uh, the systems such as the prison system that you know continue to contribute to oppression in different ways Mm -hmm. until you're in it or until you understand parts of it uh, you're just um, You know, ignorance is bliss. And I think part of the part of the uh, use the word disconnect earlier, I see a disconnect that causes a lot of anger in white people because they just are not seeing uh, kind of like, what's the big deal? And it's I feel like it takes time and focus and a desire to learn more before somebody understands why it is and has been for a very long time a very big deal. My hope is that so much of what um, is being injected into our culture right now and maybe um in greater doses since uh you know george floyd's death is that we um that people will respond with gosh i really need to learn about this rather than you know push it away this is uncomfortable and that is the reason that david and i are are doing this show because we want to uh make m- more accessible conversations like the one we had with you today, where people can share their experience, share their wisdom, and, um, you know, the hope is that listeners walk away with something they didn't have before and a deeper sense of compassion. And uh, to circle back around to this notion of helplessness, feel less helpless, feel like they do have a sense of agency. Mm-hmm. And as you said earlier, James, at the very least, Listen. <laughs>
1: Right. Mm-hmm. Big one for all of us. And,
0: and
1: absolutely. And when you come back, uh, James, I want to I want to really get into um, just more of how policy and things are uh, put in place uh, with the design of marginalizing a people. I don't mm-hmm. think a lot of people realize how much that exists even still today. You know and how um you know when when those that have get ready to uh exploit certain people that it's done deliberately yeah. and uh and then people end up you know being a product of that but mm-hmm. looked at as if they are just less than and criminal and what have you and i, I think it's important that people recognize how you know, generations, uh, you know, people put that in place so that it reaps dividends uh, on people's lives generationally. And I think that we need to kind of discuss that too. So when you come back, I look forward to being able to talk about that.
2: Thank you guys, appreciate it. Yeah. Thank
1: Thank you you so much for your time and your insights. Thank you for listening to I'm Black, You're White, Now What?
0: You can find more episodes on the podcast channel, Teaching What It Takes, Available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify.
1: To learn more about the work I do, visit www.preparingthepath.com.
0: And to learn more about the work I do, visit drchristherber.com.